You're listening to the Functional Nurse Podcast, and on this episode, I interview Dr. Terry Walls, so stay tuned. Hello, nurses, and welcome to the Functional Nurse Podcast. My name is Bridget Sager, and I'm your host. I am a family nurse practitioner, and I teach functional medicine for nurses through the Integrative Nurse Coach Academy in partnership with the Institute for Functional Medicine. And I have a feeling most of you guys know my guest today, but I am interviewing Dr. Terry Walls. And I'm going to take a minute to introduce her, and then we are going to get a ton of insight from her today. I'm really excited about. Um, So Dr. Walls is an Institute for Functional Medicine medicine certified practitioner. She conducts clinical trials in the setting of multiple sclerosis. In 2018, she was awarded the Institute for Functional Medicine's Linus Pauling Award for her contributions in research, clinical care, and patient advocacy. She's the author of The World's Protocol, A Radical New Way to Treat All Chronic Immune Conditions Using Paleo Principles, and the cookbook, The Wall's Protocol, Cooking for Life. We will be including links to her studies that we're going to be talking about, her social media accounts, a link to her free copy of The Wall's Diet Cheat Sheet in the show notes. So don't worry about catching the titles of everything we talk about today. Uh, And Dr. Walls, thank you so much for joining us today. I know my audience is so excited to hear what you have to say. And thank you for the very important work that you're doing, Bridget. I am uh, very pleased to be here. Thank you. I think most of my audience is familiar with your work, but I'd love to start with you sharing your own health story. And um, because I think it's just such a testament to the work that we all do. So uh, I'm an internal medicine physician. Before becoming a physician, uh, I was an athlete. I competed full contact taekwondo, uh, free sparring. I entered medical school. I thought I should let people keep trying to kick me in the head for two points. So I uh, uh, taught. I, I did medical school. Uh, I started having twinges of face pain during medical school, uh, toughed it out. Uh, it became gradually more troublesome. And then 20 years later, I developed weakness in my left leg. I see my neurologist who says, Terry, this could be bad or really, really bad. And for the next three weeks, I'm going uh, through the workup, but I'm thinking about the fact that I've had 20 years of worsening electrical face pain. And so I know I probably have a progressive condition and I'm actually, I'm hoping for a rapidly fatal diagnosis because I don't want to be disabled. Uh, three weeks later, I hear multiple sclerosis. I do my research, find the best MS center in the country, uh, see their best physician, take the newest drugs. Three years later, I'm in a tilt-recline wheelchair. I take mitoxantrone, a form of chemotherapy. It does not help. I take Tizabri, the new biologic, does not help. I'm then switched to Celsept. I have young children Uh, now ages 8 and 11, and I have to ask myself, am I doing all that I can? I'm still mentally clear, uh, and so I begin reading the basic science, uh, the animal models of MS, Parkinson's, ALS, Huntington's, dementia, uh, and decide that mitochondria dysfunction drive disability. I create a supplement cocktail for my mitochondria. It slows my decline. I'm very grateful. By the summer of 2007, I cannot sit up anymore. I'm in a zero-gravity chair with my knees higher than my nose. I'm I'm beginning to have a little brain fog. I've been reviewing uh, studies for the Institute, for the Institutional Review Board, uh, which oversees uh, clinical research. And I discovered a study using electrical stimulation of muscles in people who are paralyzed. Uh, And I asked my physical therapist, can I try that? 
He says, yes, we could definitely grow bigger muscles. I just don't know if your brain could talk to those muscles. But it gives me a test session. Hurts bad. I mean, really bad. But when it's over, I feel great. Uh, my PT says it's probably the uh, endorphins. But we add electrical stimulation to my uh, workouts, which by then are itsy-bitsy 10 minutes of mad exercises, because if I do more than that, I can't. I, I just can't work. Then I discovered the Institute for Functional Medicine. They have a course on neuroprotection, which I take, and they have a longer list of supplements for my mitochondria, uh, which I add. And then I have this big aha, and now I laugh at that, how long it took to have this aha. Like, what if I redesigned the paleo diet that I've already been following for five years? So no grains, no legumes, no dairy. Um, and so based on this long list of supplements. So it takes a few more months of research to figure out where those foods are in the food supply. And I redesigned this way of eating starting uh, December 26, 2007. Now at that time, I cannot sit up in a regular chair uh, like this longer than uh, 10 minutes, which meets the definition of being bedridden. I can take a couple of steps with two walking sticks. I um, have the trigeminal neurology, which is getting relentlessly worse. Uh, I'm beginning to have brain fog. It's clear to me I'm on track to become bedridden by my illness, probably demented by my illness, and I would probably die ultimately with intractable pain because with MS, if you have trigeminal neuralgia as part of your disease process, it eventually turns permanently on such that, in my case, light, sound triggers the pain, um, a breeze triggers the pain, moving my tongue once it's on triggers the pain. So once it's fully on, I can't talk because if I try to talk, it comes out like this. Really horrible for my family to watch uh, when those flares come on. I start this new way of eating December 26th. By the end of January, it's clear my mental clarity is improved, my energy is improving, and my pain is less. And my physical therapist says, Terry, you're getting stronger. He has me advance my exercises to 10 minutes twice a day, then 15 minutes twice a day, then 20 minutes twice a day, then half an hour twice a day. And then he says, you know, it takes 45 minutes of electrical stim to grow more muscles. You're weak everywhere. You can stimulate as many muscles as you have time to stimulate. And I begin walking first with two walking sticks, then with one, then with none. And then on Mother's Day, um, you know, basically six months of E-STEM, uh, five months of uh, uh, my new diet, I tell my family I want to try riding my bike, which I've not done for six years. So we have an emergency family meeting. Uh, Jackie, my wife, uh, tells my 16-year-old son, who's six foot five, Zach, you jog alongside the left. And she tells my 13-year-old daughter, Zebby, you jog alongside the right, and she'll follow. We get into position. She gives the all clear. I get on my bike, and I bike around the block, you know? And that big 16-year-old boy, he's crying. My 13-year-old girl, she's crying. Jackie's crying. And as you can tell, when I relive that moment, I still cry. Because with your kid, that is when the current understanding of secondary progressive MS is incomplete. And like, how much recovery might be possible? So every day, I, I, I would bike a little bit more. And then in October, Jackie says, I've signed us up for the Courage Ride. It's 18.5 miles, honey. And however far you go, it'll be, it'll be wonderful. And I, I have to take a few breaks along the way. But I cross that finish line. And once again, we're all crying. My kids are crying. Jackie's crying. I'm crying. And it fundamentally changes how I practice medicine. 
after that, I am talking to my patients about diet, about lifestyle, uh, and it will ultimately change the research that I do, and it changes my mission in life to give people hope to realize that even if your physicians say, there's nothing I can do, my response is, there is immense amount of things that we can do. We can create a healthier environment for yourselves, and you may be surprised at how much recovery of function you can achieve. And forgive me, I have to wipe my nose because I always cry when I tell the story. Thank you for sharing that. I I have two teenagers, so that really got me too. Like I can only imagine not being able to do so many of those things with them. And then that moment of of being able to with them is just huge. It is huge. And I had learned in medical school, when you got to the progressive phase of MS, there is no recovery that's possible. Every one of my physicians um, over the 20 years of my trigeminal neuralgia, well, 27 years of trigeminal neuralgia, seven years of MS had said recovery in the progressive phase is not possible. And so, And I'd done all of that not to recover because I knew recovery was not possible. I'd done all of that because my hands still worked. I could still feed myself. I could still wipe my own butt. And that's really valuable. So I, it, 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 part of having a progressive MS is you let go of the future. You learn to take each day as it unfolds. And so even though I was walking around, I didn't know what it meant until I rode my bike. I was like, well, we don't know how much recovery might be possible. And it may be, we don't know how close to normal I can get. I love in what you were talking about doing your own research, The um, you mentioned cellular health. And I talk to my students all the time about how functional medicine is acknowledging biochemistry is important, right? Like that we actually have to think about these things. But you saying like you you know, I, I, we talk about like, you can't compartmentalize things and say this condition and this condition, and you're looking at different health paralysis, right? Like you're looking at different research studies that aren't about MS, but you're starting at that time to connect this, like, wait a minute, these might have an underlying connection and I can use research from different areas because it's all about the mitochondria, right? Like it's all about the mitochondria. It's all about the microenvironment for ourselves. And what, what um, struck me uh, when I began to, to um, develop by protocols is, okay, we don't have really good uh, research to say, here's what you can do to restore MS, but there's an abundant amount of research about things, particularly in the lifestyle world, that improve health. So a lot of research about meditation, about diet quality, about sleep, about exercise, I, and so part of what I would ultimately learn is, because when I, when I changed how I practice medicine, I started talking about diet and lifestyle as a treatment for all these diseases I see in primary care. I was really agitating my partners. And I had I got called in to my chief of staff office. And he said, Terry, people are complaining. What, what the hell's going on? He read me the riot act. Uh, and now, fortunately, I, I had been sort of prepared for that. I had brought with me a handful of scientific papers, and I said, okay, here's what I'm doing and why. Uh, and he said, that's not the standard of care. Uh, and um, then I said, okay, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm good with just doing standard of care, John. Uh, send out an email to all of the faculty that we, we, we can't use the latest research to guide our therapies. We have to follow the standard of care, and of course I'll follow that. <laughs> then I sit back and I smile, and I, and I don't smile much in meetings. I, I, uh, so I'm smiling, and he 
client says, okay, if anyone gets hurt, you're going through peer review. And I said, of course, we all go through peer review when, right, when someone gets hurt. Um, but he ultimately becomes a huge uh, fan of my work. And he does something that I think was uh, very, very wise. He says, you have to quit annoying your partners. I'm going to send you to the uh, complimentary to medicine clinic. You're going to learn how to talk about this in the public space, in your medical record, in a way that doesn't upset your partners. And so what I learned is, and uh, I'm sure this is probably what you're telling your nursing staff is, we're focused on creating health. I'll let my medical team partners treat disease, and I will tell my patients that you have to keep working with your medical team to treat their diseases. I'm going to help you improve the health of your cells. And then we have to watch your blood pressure, your blood sugar, adjust your meds, because you, you may need to have your medications lower so you're not over-medicating. Uh, because we're, my focus is creating health. Now, that message no longer offended people. When I started saying, yep, keep seeing your, your primary care, especially folks, so they can manage your disease, I'm going to help you create better uh, health behaviors and better health. That's a message that's okay. I think what you do is so vital that the nursing world gets this, and they got it way ahead of the physician world. Uh, I, I know when my message of uh, diet and lifestyle went out in 2008, 2009, I was banned as a speaker. The specialty world thought my message was very dangerous. Uh, I was condemned. But I also know a lot of nurses, when people were getting diagnosed with MS, would go to a patient and say, have you heard about Dr. Terry Walls? Have you heard about uh, the TED Talk? And they would write out my name. They would write out the book, the name of the TED Talk, and give people hope. And now, eventually, the physicians have now come along about 15 years after the nurses. <laughs> and they're beginning to say, have you heard of Dr. Terry Walls? But the nurses got were on board first. Yes. You know, one of the things that we talk about a lot is um, that that we learn things in nursing school, you know, that then we we move into this allopathic medical model where it's kind of made to feel like it isn't as valuable as it truly is. And functional medicine really acknowledges the power that nurses have. And that I tell them, I'm like, maybe you can't call it functional medicine like you're talking about with your peers. But you could say, oh, I'm a holistic nurse. I talk about fruits and vegetables and exercise. And then they're like, oh, OK, we'll let her. We'll, we'll. <laughs> you, you can talk about vegetables. Yeah, right. We have to understand what is the language that feels okay to the community, the space that we're in. Yes. And and uh, I know at the functional medicine space, when I was first operating that, 2008, 2009, they leaned a lot more heavily on advanced functional medicine testing, more heavily on uh, supplements, some on devices. When, when I had my transformation, I'm in the Veteran Affairs Hospital, I, and I can't have advanced testing. I, I don't get any advanced supplements, but I can talk about diet and lifestyle. And, and what I saw was the power of story, the power of connection, the power of groups, and the power of diet and lifestyle. And I got stunning results without any advanced testing. And then when I finally was able to create my own clinic, uh, and so I now I could do just a little bit of tiny testing, a CBC, uh, lipids, A1C, vitamin D, homocysteine. And I felt like, you know, 
it, Christmas because suddenly, I, you know, I, I could do some lab testing and I could first, and, and now I could add a little supplement. I could add 2,000 units of vitamin D, a multivitamin, two grams of fish oil, and a, and a synthetic B complex. And, and those were all the supplements I could use. And I got even better results. And I challenged the um, faculty at Functional Medicine to spend more time talking about uh, modifiable lifestyle factors and behavior change in that the vast majority of health recovery doesn't require functional medicine testing. It simply requires hope, connection, and lifestyle factors. And um, so I, I'm, I'm pleased to say uh, functional medicine folks have gotten on board with me on that. They've gotten on board with uh, stressing more the uh, lifestyle factors. And I'm so pleased that they've gotten more on board with deepening the relationship with uh, nursing staff. Yes, absolutely. And I'm really grateful for that, too. I know my students are. And they do. I was going to I, I know we I've told you before that my students often do exactly what you said. They're like, have you heard of Dr. Terry Walls when their patients have, they tell me that. So um, major impact that you've had in that community. Um, I talked to you at the PM, PLMI conference. You spoke about um, I want to talk about your current research, but I wanted to say to my audience, you know, it's a lot of nurse coaches and you're talking about coaching right now. And your talk was about diet and about getting people there, right? Like that maybe we can tell them exactly the right steps that could make them successful, but sometimes they need to partner with somebody. And you just brought that up. And I think you sounded like a nurse coach. Like you're talking. Yeah. (laughs) And and what a so lovely... So I, I spent years and years being a internal medicine doc, uh, being a physician leader, really believing in the best drugs and newest devices. And I used that, or it wasn't good enough. I, and it was diet and lifestyle that recovered me. And then I saw when I started using that in my clinics with my internal medicine folks who were really very ill, that was far more effective than any of the drugs. It was shocking. And it was uh, shocking to the residents when I taught that to the residents. They're like, oh, my God, it was it was so shocking. So yep. it transformed the way I practice medicine. It transforms the way I teach. Medicines can be, the pharmacology can be very helpful. I still use drugs. Um, I still can advocate for them. I can even still advocate for uh, very potent disease-modifying drug treatments occasionally. But I am always, always, always advocating for teaching people how to create health using diet and lifestyle. I agree about what you're saying about prescriptions. And, you know, what you said earlier, it circles back to that is like when we're talking about it from a nursing perspective and the scope of practice of an RN is, okay, what we're working on might change your blood pressure, your blood sugar. This is what signs and symptoms might look like, that you're not doing so much of advocating for medications as people come to us on them. And we're like, okay, you might actually get better. And this is what that's going to look like. And you might need to wean off of something. Right. We, we have to be very careful because if you start feeling a little lightheaded or woozy, like, oh my goodness, your blood pressure may be falling. If your mood is so much better and you're on an antidepressant, depending on which antidepressant, now I have to be mindful that I could be flipping you over into feeling a little too great, a little <laughs> hypersexual, a little hyperspendy, and making some you know decisions that would not be so good. So we have to adjust your mental health meds. So we do have to be mindful of what your medication list is. And as you begin to recover, like, okay, 
maybe we it would be appropriate to talk to the prescriber uh, about monitoring and considering reducing some of these medications. Yes. Now, I would love to for you to tell us all about your current research. Uh, the study is called The Efficacy of Diet on Quality of Life in Multiple Sclerosis. And I would love for my participants yeah, to yeah. more about that. So um, we are very committed to changing the standard of care, which means I need to do high quality, randomized, controlled research. We're comparing a ketogenic diet, a modified paleo diet, also basically known as the Wallace diet, uh, to usual diet. Uh, people with relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis um, who are w- between the ages of 18 and 70, willing to be randomized, uh, come to Iowa at month zero, month three, month uh, 24. Uh, we'll do some patient-reported outcomes on fatigue, quality of life, uh, some clinical outcomes on walking, hand, vision function, and a no-contrast MRI at baseline and month 24. It'll be 156 people. This will be the largest, longest diet study that will have been done. Uh, that includes MRIs uh, for people with MS. You can learn more about this at terrywalls.com forward slash MS study. Um, we've got about 120 people in and randomized. Um, we want to get to 156, so that means I'm looking for 35 more. It would be so helpful to have people uh, screen. And even if they don't have relapse remitting MS, have them complete the screening survey so they can be in our patient database because we have new uh, survey-based uh, studies that we do from time to time, and they could hear about those. Again, it's terrywalls.com forward slash MS study. I, I want to stress just how important this is, right? And because I'm, we're going to talk now about research more and uh, that that this is what we need to do as a yeah. community in functional medicine is support each other in promoting research studies that can advocate for how effective the things that we do are in larger and larger cohorts, right? Which is tricky. So I uh, I know that you are an expert in, in how we use this idea of, you know, we can have these large drug companies funding studies with 20,000 participants in it, right? But it gets tricky when you're starting to do things like food and lifestyle and, and eating which, which form of magnesium and those kind of studies. So I'd love for you to share your thoughts on that. So if you're doing a diet study, I have to take people who are willing to be randomized. Let's say they get randomized to the keto diet. So now we're training them on the keto diet, uh, training them on how to measure their ketones. Or if they're in the paleo group, we'll tra- train them on the paleo diet. If they're in the usual diet group, they get to continue eating uh what they what they want. But keep in mind that you're asking people to, to stop food that they're familiar with, use new recipes, um, convince, and we stress that people are much more successful if they do this as a family. So now we're going to try and convince the family to eat these new foods uh, and to try these new recipes. It is hard because most of us are eat foods that we're very familiar with. We have a few recipes that we like. We, you know, usually the average family has 10 to 15 recipes that we rotate through, and that's what we really like. We have ingredients that we like. And now um, I have to have you think through okay, I really like pizza and beer on Friday. Um, <laughs> I'm going to have to make food swaps if I'm still going to have pizza. I'm not going to have beer. So could I have uh, um, uh, an apple or pear cider instead? Um, so we, we help people 
think through what, you know, given their families' traditional preferences, how they might reimagine some of their favorite foods and favorite meals. I I've seen on your social media where you share and you'll be in your garden doing something or, you know, like talking about oh. fruits and vegetables and out, outdoors. Uh, and I, I know for me personally, I, when I healed myself, you know, using food and, and having teenagers in the house, that's, that's not <laughs> it, easy. It, you, no, you really get buy-in as, as people around you see you get better. But I was wondering, it was how was that? Were you already like a gardener and you guys well, were eating great? Or did you have to get a lot of buy-in too with your teenagers? So I remember I've been a, um, a vegetarian for 20 years. Uh, and then okay. when I uh, adopted the paleo diet, my kids were still pretty young. Um, I, I was doing paleo. They would have paleo at home. They could go elsewhere and eat uh, whatever. I, and it was an interesting conversation uh, when we'd go to a restaurant. Uh, and, you know, so we're... Uh, eating, uh, uh, making our good choices, and they want to order something that's not so good for them. It's an interesting question. How how do you handle that? Um, one of my one of my families have since told me this really great concept. I, I I should give them credit. What they did is when their teenagers wanted to make a food choice that wasn't good for them, they'd say, "Well, honey, that's fine. Did you bring the money to pay for that? Because if you want to order that, you have to pay for it now when we're ordering it because." Uh, I'm only going to pay for stuff that the family agrees is good for you. And so the kids get to have their autonomy, um, but the parents don't have to subsidize poor diet choices, I think. Oh, I like that. So that was really quite <laughs> brilliant. <growing. laughs> that, you know, that's quite brilliant because you, you want your kids to have autonomy, and but you don't want to have to subsidize stupid choices. That is a great way to say it, too. Um, so I talk often with RNs and NPs learning and practicing functional medicine about how research impacts our work. We talk about the challenges of conducting large research studies when you're practicing more personalized care like functional medicine. Um, what are you seeing as far as like having diet research and controlling that? Are you are you because you've done a lot of studies before this morning and I, I heard you talk about one where you were saying like you just got really basic labs that were already available for people and, and had yeah. a huge impact. It, I'd like to hear more about your past research. That would be so, cool. So uh, super interesting. Uh, so we've done seven clinical trials. Uh, we've looked at a paleolithic diet, ketogenic diet, low saturated fat diets. And what we see is, uh, and of course, usual diet. Usual diet, your quality of life continues to decline, severe fatigue, uh, and MS, progressive disease, you know, you see decline. The keto diet, paleo diet, low saturated fat diet all lead to reduced fatigue, improved quality of life. Uh, the paleo diet has a larger effect size. Uh, then the next uh, was the low saturated fat and then uh, keto. When we did a network meta-analysis uh, of all of the diet studies that have been done thus far, and, and we did that in 2021, we pulled the studies at the end of May 2021. Uh, so 12 studies, 608 participants, uh, and it was a paleo diet, low saturated fat diet, Mediterranean diet, uh, ketogenic diet, uh, intermittent fasting, calorie restriction, anti-inflammation diet, and usual diet. Uh, and for fatigue, the diet that was the most effective was paleo diet, followed by low saturated fat, uh, followed by Mediterranean. Uh, and the paleo diet was about 40% more effective than Mediterranean or low saturated fat. For improving quality of life, either physical health 
or mental health quality of life. There were two diets that were effective, and it was paleo and Mediterranean. And for that, the paleo diet was twice as effective. Now, as a group, at, at, I'd say we're, we're still pretty young in the dietary research sphere. Uh, I, I think um, we'll have, it'll, it'll be worthwhile doing another network meta-analysis probably in 2027, 20, you know, because we'll have more studies, more information. Um, it, it's exciting. Uh, I think there there is more acceptance that diet really matters. Um, I, I think many neurologists are more comfortable with the Mediterranean diet, and and that's fine if that's what the family wants to do. I, I completely endorse that. Um, if they want the most the diet with the best research, uh, it's the paleo diet, but the Mediterranean diet that's also acceptable. Now clinically, if the person has insulin resistance severe obesity, uh, the ketogenic diet clinically may be better for them. So in my clinical practice, um, we look at all their comorbid conditions. We look at the family, uh, and I I may have an opinion about what I think is medically the best one for them. But I also stress that they'll be much more successful if they can do this as a family. And so then it's a family conversation. What are the foods that we could increase as a family? What are the foods we could decrease as a family? What are the foods we could eliminate as a family? And I, I, I'm less um, rigid about is this diet plan uh, a Mediterranean, ketogenic, a um, a paleo diet? I, I'd rather talk about what foods can you add, what foods can you reduce, what can you eliminate, what movement could you add, how could we improve your sleep? And, and for some people, they're ready to do a big complicated plan with lots of steps and others need, you know, a little small next step. Yes. Keep it as simple as possible. I think that's so valid like that you because you spoke about this and I wanted to mention, I, I don't know if you know this, but, you know, the recordings for PLMI uh, for that conference go. I think they're available sometime this month, they said, but it's really inexpensive to go on and pay to have access to all the old recordings and they can hear what, what everything you said about all this in in length from the, the past hmm. um uh, this last conference, but I, I love that he makes that so affordable for everybody to access the the top experts in their field talking about their passion projects. And um, so I, I wanted to mention that, but uh, that idea that you just said about like, you can know which study might be the ideal one for somebody in your medical opinion, right? But uh, we have to meet people where they are. Where they're right. Like you could say, as a family, which one of these do you think is going to work for your home and, you know, all of you for you to be able to be successful? You know, um, I, I went at the end of my talk, uh, I talked about what are the key questions I ask uh, at the end of my uh, patient encounters. And this was Professor Bill Bean. He said, when you're done with it, your patient visit, ask, what did you learn and what are you going to do? I, and what I learned was I was not a very effective teacher. I used big words. I, I, I had to make things simpler. I had to use more basic metaphors. And I also learned that some people are ready to do what I asked. And some said, hell no, I'm not doing that, doc. And they're like, well, okay, well, what would you like to do? What could you do? Or maybe the, uh, I'm the wrong person for you. And I need to help you find a, a different uh, physician. And it was much better to know that at the end of the, the visit, before they left, 
so we could come up with a plan that they could implement or we could acknowledge that I'm not the right person for them. Uh, and what what I learned from that is doing medicine then became so much more fun because I, I was now my role was to educate, give people a choice and know that we could come up with a plan that we both like or that we couldn't and I need to find them a different physician. Yeah, uh, And so medicine has always been very joyful for me because I, I'm, I'm not in conflict with my patients. Uh, I, I educate them, I give them options, we find a mutually agreeable solution, or we agree that I'm not the right person for them. And then I help them find, I'll help them fire me and get someone who's, who's a better fit. <laughs> right. We can't be everything to everybody. I think Correct. that's a really good take-home message. And I tell my students that. I'm like, who create a list of the other people in your community that might be the right person. You know, somebody with trauma, we're not the right person for them necessarily, right? They need to partner with an expert in that. And so we're sometimes we're the bridge to, to making the connection. Did you know that this could have such an impact on your health? And here's an expert in that that could help you with it. You know, the other thing that I acknowledge is that doing diet and lifestyle, changing that, that is hard. Uh, it, it takes a little more effort. And I realized that this may not be the right time, that maybe um, you have a, a spouse who's going through their own cancer diagnosis. Uh, and so it's taking all of your effort to deal with that. Or there is a financial crisis uh, 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 that is taking all of your um, uh, resources. I, and so I got it. It, it, and, and, and this is hard. It may not be the right time. Come back when it is. Let us know when you want to revisit this. But if, if, if this is the right time, here's what we could do. Yeah. And I love that. How long in healthcare did it take us to actually ask the patients if, what they heard and what they're, you know, like that feedback at the what, end of a What did you learn? And, and, uh, what what are you going to do? Those are profound like they questions, leave. right? Because if they if they come back three months later and say, "Oh, Doctor Walls, I didn't even that wasn't I, can't I didn't do any of that. that. I can't. Yeah. I didn't do any of that. Yep. I, we wasted three months of their time and my time. If I would have known that earlier, where they said, "You know what? I can't do any of that, Doc," and I think you're full of shit, then I'm like, "Okay, <laughs> then I should get you a different a different uh, practitioner," and that would be okay. It would not hurt hurt my feelings at all. Um, but if they said, I can't do that, I could have said, okay, what do you think you could do? And maybe what they could have done is like, you know what, instead of three Cokes a day, I'll do one. That's forward progress. Well, I've seen, I, I'm sure you have too. I've seen people feel drastically better from that. And then they're like, okay, what else do you got? You know, like, Correct. wow, I didn't know my pain could go down that much from that, that one that, change. That small change. So I, ideally, we we have them identify a change that they feel okay about making. And that we can check it on. I and my my preference is ideally that they can continue to work with their coach, whether it's their nurse coach or health coach, so they could keep checking in on like, okay, you know what, I got to the one coke, I'm ready to go on no cokes, and you know, I, I um, what do you have? I, I I'm ready to do something about movement. I, and so if they can have credit check-ins with someone who can help them say. I will be the person you could check in with on meeting the goal that I you know, mutually developed with you. Because it, it needs to be a goal that speaks to their heart. But it's so helpful to have someone that I could call and check in with at some frequency that says, I made it, I'm ready for the next goal, or I didn't make it, and maybe I have to adjust my goal. 
Yes. And, you know, it makes it just nurse coaching is, um, you know, everybody knows that they shouldn't smoke. They shouldn't drink too much alcohol. They should exercise and eat fruits and vegetables. Right. Like we can oversimplify what people should do. But getting there is hard. And that's why nurse coaching is huge now, because because people need that support. And a lot of my students will be registered nurses. And we, I want to talk about scope of practice before we wrap up. But they, they'll they'll maybe be like, well, I don't know if I want to have my own practice or have my own panel of of patients that I care for with lifestyle and and um, the things we're talking about today. Some of my students are like, let me start. I didn't know I could do this. Let's do it. Um, but a lot of them are also nurse coaches. And it's I think it's it. we have to share this workload as a community in functional medicine. And the idea of a provider saying exactly what you just said, here's where we'd like to get and now partner up with this nurse coach and work through that and get there at your pace in the way that works for you and your family. People will be much more effective. Now, every now and then, someone can get my book, read it, and be inspired, make a big change, and boom, uh, we change their life. Uh, I'd say the majority of folks, and certainly what I find in my clinical practice, my clinical research, that if there's some way for them to check in um, with a coach, with a, 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 and ideally, if the coach is able to have a group forum uh, where people can talk in a group uh, in person or now with Zoom, that peer-to-peer support, uh, really phenomenal. And so I, I think nurses are, are well-trained. Um, I imagine there's some probably some additional uh, coaching, behavior change, training uh, available to nurses so that would enhance their skills uh, more uh, as well. But food, sleep, meditation, movement, um, uh, meaning in life, these are things that uh, I think are nurses, nurse coaches would be very skilled with. That's exactly what I was going to ask you next is like for for specifically to multiple sclerosis when we're talking about that specifically and a nurse is partnering with somebody. I know, you know, I want to mention again, I know a lot of my students and people listening work with patients that have that diagnosis and I'd love for them to share the, your need for yeah. participants in your study. Um, so I want to drive that home again like that. That would be great for our nurses to make that connection for their patients. But what is when they're starting to work with somebody that has that diagnosis, what is your like bare bones getting started? What, where where would you recommend um, they start with somebody? Uh, remind them to have hope. Remind them that there are a plan of us who have MS. You know, I've, my symptoms began in, ni- in 1980. Uh, so clearly 40 years ago. Um, I walk, I hike, I bike, I jog, uh, I write books, I do research. I have an absolutely rich and very full life. Uh, it's absolutely possible for people to thrive. Depending on your clinical circumstances, you can sort out where drugs fit in all of that. But addressing diet and lifestyle, uh, uh, we should all be doing that. And the physicians, we don't have time to teach people about diet or exercise uh, or any of the lifestyle factors. The physicians uh, barely have enough time to talk to them about the DMTs, the risks, and the benefits. They need to hand off to someone who can answer patients' questions about, they may not understand the Mediterranean diet. They may not understand the paleo diet. They may have questions about, how much protein do I need? They may have questions about sleep. They may have questions about, well, exercise. Is it good for me or not? The physician will say, yeah, it's important. 
hopefully, I, I even know if the physicians will uniformly say that. <laughs> they'll, they'll say DMTs are important. Then I'd say about 50-50 now, they'll say diet and lifestyle are important. And even if they do, they don't have the time and they don't have the skills. They don't have the not. They, they, very few know anything about diet. Shocking. But very few will know anything about diet. Thank you for sharing that. I think that that speaks to the, before we go, I wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of speak on to your thoughts on this. Just when, we, when we're talking if, as nurses and nurse practitioners in functional medicine training, we talk about scope of practice a lot. My students research their personal scope of practice, yeah. like what state or what country do you live in? What are you allowed to do? What we have found across the board, nobody hasn't found this yet, is nurses are educators and we are 100% the advocates, we're healers. That's why we went to school in the first place typically is to empower people and to partner with them. So I find like I felt like I was coming home as a nurse learning functional medicine and hundreds of my students have written that in their comments, you know, through the course. Um, but a lot of the times I I find as nurses work through my course, they'll say, oh, wow, I didn't realize how much like the light bulb doesn't go off for a few weeks. And then they're like, I can do this. And this is fully within my scope of practice. You know, our modern lifestyle is a huge part of the problem. And Absolutely. we don't need medications, right? We're not deficient in medications. And so I would love for you to share your thoughts on, I'm sure you have worked with lots of nurses and nurse practitioners in your career. And I would love for you to just... If, before we wrap up, like your thoughts on yeah. nurses' role. So uh, I, I think it's huge. We we also train uh, nurses, uh, health coaches, in the Walls Behavior Change Model because you know the current behavior change is uh, pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparing for action, taking action, uh, and then sustained action and relapse. And that's you know change is hard. So we created a 15-step process to help people be far more successful at adapting and sustaining change. And we admit it is hard. Uh, and, and one of the uh, that's the first thing we have to do is be honest with our patients. It is hard to give up tobacco, alcohol, gambling addictions, um, and other you know deleterious stuff that we're all addicted to. Sitting too much, for example. And then the next thing we ask people to do is, what is your why? If your health could improve a little bit, what would you like to be doing again? And um, a, a really insightful question is, if you looked at a house and smoke was rolling out of the windows, is there something or someone that you care so deeply about that you would rush in barefoot over a broken glass to go save? And often it's grandchildren, children, spouse, maybe a parent. It might be a dog or a cat. Occasionally, there's some, you know, uh, family heirlooms that you care about. And if no one has anything on that list, I send them to mental health for counseling because they aren't going to be successful with making life change if there's nothing that they care that deeply about. Uh, and it's okay for them to say, you know what, I'll work that hard because I want to save my life. I, that is great um, for, for many of us, and, and we will work that hard for our children and grandchildren and spouse. And then I can begin the conversation of, well, if your health would improve a little bit, what, what would you like to be doing to be more effective with your children or your grandchildren? And people might say, um, I'd like to take my grandchildren to the park again. Um, my son's in high school, my daughter's in high school, and, I, and uh, they're dating this really fine young person that I think they're gonna get married and I, and I wanna be able to walk him or her down the aisle. That is like, oh my God, this this is this is gold. 
now they have a reason to do the work. And then we have several more steps along the way, but you have to give people a reason to do the work because it's, we're asking them to do something that's really hard. I, I think the question why is just like, it just explains functional medicine in, you know, like, well, it, it, like, like you it, and I come up so much. It comes up so much, right? Yeah. You know, it, it explains functional medicine the way you practice it, the way I practice it, because we are so, uh, I, I don't lean that heavily on supplements. I don't lean that heavily on devices. I lean very heavily on helping people be successful, changing how they run their lives for themselves and their family. And that's the hardest thing. You know, people will spend tens of thousands of dollars on testing, tens of thousands of dollars on on uh, supplements and devices um, because they want to do all that. They don't really want to change their diet, don't really want to change their lifestyle. They don't really want to change their sleep patterns or their exercise. Um, and what you and I do with helping people address their lifestyle factors are what creates health and what it's what will save uh, the country. Yeah, and we're asking why? Why do why does this person have this going on? But then you were just speaking too about the why they would be motivated to why you want to, to change, right? And yeah, so like why is just like this overarching theme where I feel like when I started nurse practitioner school and you're learning to diagnose and treat, diagnose and treat, it's the what? It's how do I name this, you know? And and then I can connect what the treatment will be. And so I I love that you brought the why around to the, the coaching part too. It's like and um you know, I get less and less interested on the di- formal diagnoses. I'm I'm interested in um, the root causes, understanding the lifestyle factors, the mediators, the triggers. Um, I'm interested in the symptoms of altered physiology um, because I, I focus on addressing the lifestyle factors, monitoring the symptoms of physio- physiology. And I tell people that I'm, I'm working on on treating your cells. I'll let your specialists treat your disease, and they'll do a good job of that. I'll treat your cells, and along the way, if we're successful, we may discover that your disease quiets, 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 and disappears. And you know, people will come uh, to see me like they they don't have a diagnosis yet. They're determined to get a diagnosis. They want me to make a diagnosis, and I say you're at the wrong place. I don't make diagnoses. Mm-hmm. I work on optimizing health, and so we will do a functional medicine, kind of uh, thoughtful look at all this, and then we'll never get to a diagnosis, and hopefully you'll never get to a diagnosis because we we create a better environment for yourselves, uh, and everything quiets down, quiets down, quiets down, and your health and vitality return. I love how you said that, and the idea, you know, like it, we're like the empowerment that we give people when we give the education and then acknowledge there's potential for them to reverse some symptoms. And sometimes, you know, sometimes sometimes reverse the disease. Not always, but sometimes we do. Sometimes we... Yeah, but sometimes we make their lives easier. So much easier. (laughs) Dr. Walsh, thank you so much for being with us today. I would like to give you a second to just anything you want to say to nurses that are thinking about thank you for thank you for all the work that you do you guys were underground you embraced me 15 years ahead of the physician so thank you i i'm very very grateful uh for what you're doing keep up the good work tell people about terrywalls.com forward slash ms study and come follow me on instagram and uh think about getting trained in the walls uh 
behavior change model, I think it would fit in very well to everything that you, the nursing community, uh, are doing. Thank you. And we're going to have links to all of that and your cheat sheet and the study and everything in the show notes. But uh, I just appreciate you spending time with us today. Thank you, Bridget. Until next time, everybody, be well. Thank you for tuning in for this episode of the Functional Nurse Podcast. If you want to help spread the word about the powerful role nurses can play as true healers using functional medicine practices, consider sharing an episode with a nurse friend or on social media. And click the subscribe button to stay informed of newly released episodes. You can also visit and share the links below in the show notes for more information on nursing resources and the Functional Medicine for Nurses course offered through the Integrative Nurse Coach Academy in partnership with the Institute for Functional Medicine. Until next time, be well.